Podcasts ranking Beatles songs. Too many songs, 223. Too many people saying that you're dumb for doing this stupid podcast with me. <laughs> this it was, was a huge mistake. mistake. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely done. You've all just heard the debut of our husband and wife McCartney tribute band Wangs, as we've always threatened to my record. My apologies for singing. <laughs> that is not my forte. I thought it was lovely. I enjoyed it. But uh, welcome, everybody, to episode 110 of Ranking the Beatles. So glad you're all here. My name is Jonathan. Over here to my left, somewhere in the middle of the headphones for you probably, is my beautiful wife, Julia. How are you, love? I'm pretty good. How yeah, are you? I'm good. It's been a uh, a tough week, but it's okay. Having a little little old man back pains this week. Nobody wants to hear about this. I'm telling him about it. Nobody wants to hear this, Papa. Aw, <laughs> come on, man. Don't y'all want to hear about my ailments? No. <laughs> this is the most no, no one. boomer thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> my Beatles podcast complaining about back pains. <laughs> Listeners, we are in fact not boomers, so We're I don't not. know what's yeah. happening right now. We're geriatric millennials is what we are. <laughs> oh, man. This is the worst term. <laughs> I hate it. It is terrible. But uh, mm. but it's okay. I'm doing fine. How are, yeah, have you had a good week so far? Uh, it's good. Yeah? Yeah. Good, good, good. Last week was good. Um, did the Traveling Wilburys tribute show. I mean, it was That so was a fun. lot of fun. So great. Uh, if we do it again, we had a few people ask if we were going to stream it, which we would have liked to have done, but we weren't able to facilitate that in time. So hopefully if we do it again, maybe we'll be able to do that next time. Fingers crossed. But uh. Things on the whole are good, man. I'm doing all right. You good? I've, I've already told you twice. I know. I'm just double checking. <laughs> I just like triple check. I like to double and triple check and make sure you're okay. God, whatever. <laughs> Forgive me for caring. <laughs> well, fine. Let's go ahead and start the show. Uh, <laughs> I am really excited about this uh, this show this week, y'all. I was fortunate to meet this week's guest in Los Angeles a couple months back when my band The Walrus was out there for some shows. He's the author of the book, Some Fun Tonight, uh, the backstage story of how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 1964-1966, which I had looked at multiple times online and been like, I got to pull the trigger and get these books. They look phenomenal. Um, They are the most in-depth look at the three U.S. tours the Beatles undertook in 1964, 65, and 66. They're absolutely massive. I think the the FedEx package was 13 pounds. Um, maybe that's why I pulled my back. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) filled with over 800 images, mostly unseen, tons of information on every show on the tour, as well as the behind the scenes, uh, machinery that make, uh, these tours happen. Um, and I've not been able to put these books down since we got them. They're absolutely fantastic. I've kept one at the bedside, one on the couch downstairs. They're filled with amazing information and pictures. If you really want to dive into the Beatles as a touring band during those, three, you know, major Beatlemania years, this is the place to look. So super excited to have him here on the show. It's going to be a lot of fun. Y'all please welcome Chuck Gunderson. Chuck, welcome to Ranking the Beatles. How you doing, man? Great. Thanks for having me on. Always good to be with you. Yeah, man. It's so good to see you. We met briefly uh, in Los Angeles a couple months ago. and mm, San Diego. Uh, oh, was it? It was... 
I thought we met Del Mar. That, I thought it was at the house show in Los Angeles. No. No, it was in Del Mar, okay. California. Del Mar. The concert you guys did by the beach. That's and right. Okay. Your listeners have have not seen this man perform. You need to go <laughs> find him wherever he is, and find their group. And it was it was one of the better Beatle like themed. I mean, you weren't wearing all that stuff, but I mean, yeah. you know, I like that too when band members just show up in their blue jeans or something, but right. then they just rock, <laughs> rock the Beatles out. And Walrus was, oh, it was so good. I was right out in front, me and my Thank wife. You, we were man. Right I appreciate there. that. Yeah, Thank you. That, was that, awesome. that, that trip show. was super fun. Um, it was funny. Uh, we played in Del Mar again that Friday, and then we went to a show at the Belly Up. They had a Beatles tribute band and a Stones tribute band, and they would alternate Yes, I've been songs. to that. And that a couple times a year. So like the, the, the four of us went, we kind of like posted up in the corner we were watching and uh, they came out, you know, everyone's got, you know, the, the Abbey road outfit, you know, like now Paul's got longer hair and you know, it's the whole thing. And, and our bass player was like, oh, I don't want to do the wigs. I can't do the wigs. Don't make me do the wigs. No, don't, so, don't start. Oh no, no. <laughs> None of us even remotely could look like that. So, yeah, yeah, if I ran a lookalike band, I'd say, okay, uh, when you turn 25, you're out. You're out. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. So, yeah. anyways, like God I'm bless kind of all an the authentic person. I guess yeah. at that point, so. like God bless the 50 year old McCartney guys that are still doing 22 year old Paul. I love them all. I love them <laughs> <Yeah>. all. <laughs> and had Walrus perform that night with the Beatles versus the Stones, I think you guys would have won. I think so too, <laughs> but I'm just, you know, that's me. Uh, but man, welcome to the show. I'm really excited to have you here. Um, you know, I had, I'd seen your book online since we started this podcast and my social media feeds just became, you know, filled with beetle books and beetle websites and, you know, f groups and things like that. Um, so I'm, I've really enjoyed going through it since you, since I got it. Um, it's one of the most, you know, well-researched and beautifully, presented books i'm i'm completely enamored with it um so i i, I want to know you know first of all what kind of inspired you to to do this to you know to, to go into this you know massive undertaking you must have had but also kind of you know what is your entree into the beatles where do they enter the picture for you huh. so my entree to the beatles is because i'm the last sibling of my three older uh my sister and my two brothers so I was uh, born in 62, so I call myself like a generation 1.5 fan. Mm -hmm. I wasn't that first generation where I saw him on Sullivan, but I definitely remember the later 60s where I was listening to the records that were spun by my sister and my two brothers, you know, remembering the Capital Swirl logo, the Apple label, the neat little apple on the other side, it's the calf apple. And so it was just always in the background of my life growing up, but I don't think it really hit me until high school. Um, I was on a cross country team and our coach decided to do some mountain training. I lived in San Diego to do some mountain high altitude training in Arizona. So they put us all in cars. This is way before like permission slips and all this. <laughs> they stuffed us in cars and, you know, same age people driving with the same age people. And I got stuck into the car of the Orton brothers. They were two identical twins. I wish I could find them again. But literally the whole way to Arizona and the whole way back, we listened to nothing but Beatles. And that absolutely just 
blew my mind. Like I thought, wow, I've got to, I've got to do this. And it will, I'll show you why later on when we talk about the song we're going to talk about. But um, yeah, it was really that thing. And then probably going to my first Beatles convention, which was Beatle Fest. It's now called the Fest for Beatles fans mm -hmm. run by the Lapidos family. And my first one was in 1979 at the Bonaventure Hotel in Los Angeles. I think I drove up my 1969 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia to LA as a teenager and attended this thing and just thought, okay, this is it for me. And kind of started my real deep love of the Beatles and especially kind of my collecting mentality. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's kind of just been great ever since. Yeah. So the book, you want to know about the book? Man. Yeah. 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 That came about, uh, about over probably 15 years ago. Um, you know, going to these Beatle Fests, things like that, um, seeing groups of people that love the Beatles, and so many books written about the Beatles. I believe there's probably over a thousand books written on the Beatles at, at this point. And I always loved their live music career. Like their career didn't start in a sterile recording studio, you know, with an Apple laptop. They you know, started on the rough and tumble stages of Liverpool and Hamburg and playing live on stage like you do. And it was that that just fascinated me. And um, so I went to several authors who I'd see at the Beatle Fest and say, hey, you know, you really you should really write a book on the tours like no one's ever done it. Like there's been a book on maybe one of the tours or a journalist remembrances or something. But I want a book that's comprehensive, that's photos, that's memorabilia, like business documents. You should do that. You know, and I talk to these people and I'm, like, I'm just too busy to do it, you know. And so I thought to myself, like, OK, well, I've got a master's degree in history. Um, I know how to research. Uh, I'm going to do this myself and I'm going to do it the way I want to do it. And it started out as one volume, you know, we're going to go all three tours and as I started collecting more and more information, finding more and more long lost photos, documents, performance contracts, memorabilia tickets and little handbills, um, the book kind of morphed into two volumes <laughs> yeah. because I, I'm a fan first. And if I was a fan and I knew some somebody had this thing and they didn't show it in the book, I'd be kind of mad. Right. <laughs> so I just want to show everything. And I wanted to show it in big detail, too. Like I, I would devote like one whole page to like a performance contract where someone could read like every word of the mm -hmm. performance contract. Um, I also wanted to, you know, do photos that not everyone had seen. I mean, now the photos of my book, which is 10 years old now, you know, they're out there a lot on the internet before, but before when I started, like I found these photos, like no one had ever seen before. And that was one of my goals was try to present those, those photos that no one had seen rare. And I, I went to the most unusual places to find them. And it was quite a, quite a hard search, but all in all, it came out. So the book is two volumes. It weighs over 13 pounds. Uh, it's in a slipcase. And uh, I've been going ever since and, and talking about the book and having fun and uh, learning even more about the tours. Yeah. What what kind of things did you learn that really surprised you? Because I feel like, you know, there's a lot of um, kind of like the trivia that people know, like, oh, well, you know, they wouldn't play to segregated audiences. Uh, things like that, that is cool to know. And like the average, you know, layperson may not know, but most Beatle fans know. But like, what kind of things did you find that really kind of surprised you or like that you appreciated more after doing all this research? 
Well, dissolving some of the myths that were out there was first and foremost, but probably the, the most important thing I learned was, you know, this was a big deal in 1964. This was huge. This was kind of the dawn of what we now know as the multi-billion dollar concert industry, you know, where publicly traded companies are involved with this thing. Mm-hmm. And even though this was such a huge, like, kind of tour, you know, 32 shows in 33 days, you know, crisscrossing all over America, playing to really, you know, the biggest crowds the Beatles had ever seen up to that point in their career. The thing I really learned that was interesting was that of the simplicity behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. You're a musician. I mean, the stage setup was rudimentary. Oh, I've, I've got more live music equipment in this room than they do at some of those shows. Like Exactly. So, you know, a really rudimentary stage set up, basically two super trooper lights, three microphones, you know, the Vox, uh, AC, whatever, the, the, the third, did they start with they start the 30s? With the 30s, the 30s yeah. And then they 30s, moved to yeah, the they moved up to the hundreds when they played Shea. Um, so the AC 30s playing the simplicity of the contract rider. Okay. Mm-hmm. If Taylor Swift goes out now, her contract rider is going to be 30 pages long. Yep. <laughs> she wants this, that, everything. The Beatles were so their, their contract rider was a page and a quarter. Mm-hmm. Okay. They wanted, you know, clean towels, uh, four portable cots, a TV set, uh, and two cases of cold soda, mirrors that's basically it (laughs) and the rest was about equipment um they weren't even talking about security yet yeah it it wasn't even until 1965 that they decided to introduce a backstage pass so 64 there was literally no they had no idea who was back there behind the scenes so i think you know playing to almost 500,000 people during that tour but yet it was so simple. No mm-hmm. feedback monitors. Yeah. They weren't invented yet. Mm-hmm. How they ever heard anything. I don't know. I'm not a musician. You are. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you got, uh, you know, some of these events, you're, you know, anywhere from 15,000 to 30,000 people. How do you hear? How do you know where you're at in the song? I don't, you know, that's something that I think about a lot because, you know, at different times I find myself in situations where, you're in a place where you've got, you know, everyone has two monitors and it's beautiful. Or now you've got in-ear monitors. And then sometimes you play like a really DIY setup with no monitors or like a small dingy club and you have no monitors. And I always hesitate to complain about it because my thought is, well, the Beatles never had monitors. I can put an earplug in and at least hear myself sing and know if I'm on pitch. Um, But, you know, when you look at, you know, at them playing Shea stadium. And even though they moved to hundred watt amps, they're not miked. So like that yeah. only goes so far in an open air stadium. Like, and they, I don't Yeah. I believe they were producing about 5,000 Watts of mm-hmm. sound. So I think when, you know, McCartney tours now have like what, 300,000 Watts yeah. of sound yeah. or so. <laughs> so yeah. And then just plugging it into the, to the state, you know, the stadium or the arena or whatever, just basically plugging it in and having it kind of go out through the speakers. 
I remember Ringo said in an interview, you know, like, how did you even follow along? You know, like they're backed up to you. Like, how do you know where you're at in the song? And he would say, well, I just watched them when they wiggled their ass. I knew <laughs> kind of where they were in the, where they were in the song, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I think that was probably the biggest revelation to me. And just that they were, they're young Liverpool kids, right? Mm-hmm. Like America is a big place. Um, and just, Kind of their wonderment. I mean, I can't even imagine what's going through their head, you know, being from Liverpool and then ending up on probably one of the most prestigious stages in America, the Hollywood Bowl in, in Hollywood, California. I mean, they're watching movies from Hollywood, California. It had to have been just this fantasy land. Oh, yeah. And then here they are. They're the biggest things ever to happen that day in Hollywood. And they're on that stage. Yeah. So that stuff like that, like getting into their head and, you know, all of that and kind of the, the organization of this thing and kind of Brian Epstein kind of inventing this rock and roll business along the way. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's really interesting because as he kind of like, as I kind of a B that with what we see nowadays, you know, we had um, Beyonce played here in town last night and, I just for fun, I looked on Ticketmaster yesterday afternoon for tickets. They were like fifteen thousand dollar tickets, and even the Taylor Swift show that's next year has nineteen thousand dollar tickets on resale. That's now, just granted, people being it's rude. resale and it's silly, <laughs> but you think of the concept of that. Like they're get the Beatles guarantee was twenty thousand dollars. Oh my gosh! Right on that first tour. Like the typical yeah, anywhere from was twenty to thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, they'd get a plus a percentage of the gate. Like that's. And to to see where that industry has gone to now is just mind blowing. And they, you know, they really were just kind of completely winging it, you know, just going by the seat of their pants. I don't think anybody had any idea what was what was going on with that with that world. Yeah, I think uh, what's also interesting, too, is that Brian, you know, we always hear all these bad stories about rock and roll managers, how they take advantage of their artists and try to try to rake in all they can get before they're not a flash in the pan anymore. And I love it that Brian kind of thought of them as more than that and developed them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because when I found his planner, um, the tour organizer in New York sent him a planner that's I feature in the book, every page of it, of all these cities and venues that they were offered to play. And in 1964, the Beatles were offered huge places. They were offered you know, Tiger Stadium, you know, 50,000 seats. They were offered even Shea Stadium in 1960. As early as April 64, they were offered Shea Stadium. They were offered the LA Coliseum at 80,000 seats. So you would think, oh, yeah, any promoter, I'm just going to milk this thing. I'm going to try to get as much as I can while while it's hot. But Brian believed that they could go further. So I think he did a really interesting thing in a sense that he turned down the really large places in favor of places like an outdoor amphitheater, like the Hollywood Bowl, 18,000 people, or the Cow Palace, an arena. They only played just, I believe, three stadiums in 64. They played Vancouver Empire Stadium, which only held about 20,000. KC Municipal, which held about 45,000. And of course, the Gator Bowl, which held 60,000, which are interesting choices. But I think he kind of thought Let's, there are more regional type cities there, mm-hmm. so we could probably draw from other cities. You know, people from Atlanta might come down to Jacksonville or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he really stuck to his plan of kind of 
getting a medium-sized venue, an arena, coliseum, outdoor amphitheater, and then see how it goes. And obviously it went really well yeah. because the next <laughs> year he's like, yep, bring those stadiums on. Shea Stadium, we're doing it. Yep. And it is interesting, too, that Shea Stadium was really the only stadium show in 65 that ever sold out. Mm-hmm. On that day when the Beatles continued on, you know, they played other stadiums, but none of them had had sold out like Shea that day on August 15th. That's interesting. I wonder why the others didn't. That's really intriguing. Rock and roll was rock and roll touring was still obviously in its infancy. Um, Even Elvis, when he was touring in the 1950s, before he went to the army, he played a few venues that the Beatles played like the Chicago's International Amphitheater. But if you look at his tour schedule, a lot of those venues include high school gymnasiums. Mm-hmm. So this was in its infancy. I mean, to attract 20, 30,000 people to a rock concert, I mean, we look at it now as just no big deal. I yeah. mean, a festival, whatever. I, this, this, to do this was at that time was so novel. Yeah. Um, and so having that at that point, it, it kind of blossomed and gave the idea to other promoters like, wow, we can attract a lot of people to a rock concert. And so I think the Beatles and Brian Epstein kind of sowed the seeds to later events like Woodstock, you know, Altamont, Watkins Glen, Live Aid, you know, it gave the idea that, hey, we can not only make some money doing this, but it can, you know, really, you know, enhance our artists and improve their their reach. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if like a lot of it had to do with a lot of their fans were teenagers mm-hmm. and they didn't have money and they would have to get money from their parents and their parents are like, what do you want money for? And they're like, I want to go see the Beatles. And they're like, you're not going to see the devil's music. <laughs> not on my time. <laughs> well, that's a good point. I and- can't tell you the number of stories because I interviewed lots of fans and um, I also kind of, you know, collect some of the concert memorabilia. And I remember this woman had called me and she had a, unused 1964 Cal San Francisco Cal Palace ticket. Mm-hmm. And she said, she said, Chuck, my parents just no way that I got the ticket, but then they said, there's no way you're going to that damn concert. <laughs> and so, you know what I did with it? I put it in the middle of the family Bible and it's been there ever since. <laughs> and so she, funny. yeah. And she found it and, you know, gave, it sold it to me obviously, but there were so many stories I heard of, you're not going to see those damn long-haired Beatles. Mm-hmm. Or I heard stories of, yeah, it was like 12, and my parents just dropped me off at the Hollywood Bowl and said, I'll, <laughs> I'll be back in a couple hours to come pick you up. Yeah. I heard those stories as well. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that was even, I feel like that's even now. Like, there were, there's concerts mm-hmm. that I went to when I was a teen, and I feel like your parents never would have let you oh, for go sure. to these concerts. And my parents were just like, yeah, whatever. Just like tell us what time you're going to be home. Like, be safe. You know, be good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, have a good time. We'll pick you up when it's over. Yeah, <laughs> and I think I think also Brian made a point to keep tickets affordable, right? Like, they were usually like yeah, the average ticket price in 1964 was four dollars and fifty cents. Yeah, which was pretty affordable and. You know, we didn't have Ticketmaster. We didn't have all these things. Oh, you know, you either, you yeah, you either went down to the venue to the box office to get your tickets, or you went to the radio station that was actually had the sponsorship agreement, and you went down to the radio station, or you sent them a envelope with a money order or a check, <laughs> mm-hmm. 
sometimes cash, and they would send you the tickets. Yeah. It's such a so, it's such a quaint idea to think about now, you know. Uh, yeah. we, we were talking about this earlier. You know, one of my one of the, when I first got the book, I opened it pretty fast to the New Orleans section because, as, as you and I were talking earlier before the show, um, New Orleans is um, a very special kind of dysfunctional. It's a very uh, we put the fun in dysfunctional. We do. <laughs> we do. Uh, it 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 very much operates in its own strange way. Uh, that's never the way it should be, but it's just kind of what it is. Um, but reading about how <clears throat> you know they they come here and the security detail goes to the wrong airport, and then they you know the cops run it like they back into a cop car, and then they go to a hotel in the middle of you know thirty miles outside of the city in the middle of the swamp, and like everything that could have gone wrong on that trip comically does in like the most New Orleans way. Mm-hmm. Like the only way it could have been like more cliche is if like the show had been like postponed by a hurricane mm. or they hit a pothole and popped a tire and didn't yeah. make it on time. Yeah. Like something like that. <laughs> yeah. It did, uh, you know, Herb holiday was the promoter and he said he was just praying it wouldn't rain. And literally right when the concert ended, this huge rainstorm, huge rainstorm hit. But, um, you know, Beatles were really interested, obviously in seeing New Orleans. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're a musical act, why wouldn't you want to see New Orleans? Right. There's just no possible way they could see it. The great thing is they were able to meet Fats Domino, um, in their trailer backstage at city park stadium, which was really cool. And Fats always says like, Oh, well, the Beatles came to meet me, which, <laughs> you know, that's Fats, you know, and um, Brian Epstein and his press officer, Derek Taylor, actually went into Bourbon Street. They had dinner at Antoine's. I saw that. And, that was really uh, intriguing that they got down yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. When they came back, you know, and told, uh, I think it was told George about it. Um, this is all from interviews I did with a promoter when he was there. And he said, uh, George looked at Brian Riley and said, well, Brian, you can't meet Fats Domino and go to Antoine's in one night. <laughs> that's that's great. <laughs> yeah, I always felt thought it was really a shame that they didn't get that day off in New Orleans that they were supposed to have. Because as famous as they were at that time, you know, and maybe it's maybe it was different then. I do feel like there's a a certain thing about New Orleans where we kind of let celebrities and famous people like just kind of do what they want. Now, maybe. 1964 Beatles is a whole different ball game. Mm, that would have been tough. But yeah. and maybe they can't just you know walk down Bourbon Street. But I do feel like security could have like ushered them into you know they Snug Harbor. Room like, at a restaurant. Yeah, they could have gotten a, room like, had a restaurant. private room at a restaurant. Bring them in through the back. Like you know, you could have made. Could have gotten snuck into a jazz club somewhere. I mean, you never yeah. know. But yeah, I, well, I, I think guess they learned. There, there wasn't like a touring. Yeah, there was there was, there was no method for this. Yeah. yeah, like this was unprecedented. What but do you I mean, do when the were, most famous people in the world are in your city? Movie stars. Did movie stars get this kind of treatment? Not really. I don't I don't think so. I mean I don't know. Maybe Elvis, but he wasn't going around to, yeah. you know, check things out in the cities he visits. Yeah. It's so, a real bummer. Yeah. I think they learned early on that it was just not possible because of the pandemonium. I mean, one of the cities they picked, which I thought was really peculiar 
was the second stop on tour, which was Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So Las Vegas at the time only had 100,000 people living there. It was by far the least populated city on the tour. I think the next biggest was Jacksonville at about a half a million. And it's like, well, why did they go to Vegas? I mean, it's not like the Vegas we think of today. There's nothing there, you know. There's a few strip casinos. And actually, the the promoter, um, you know, who tried to book them, like none of the casinos were interested. It took the last casino on the strip to finally say, yeah, okay, um, <laughs> let's have the Beatles. But I think they realized, like, oh, well, you know, why is the re- why do we want to go see Vegas? Because we want to see Vegas. That was the reason they really wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And they probably maybe had this false impression that, oh, they could lay around the pool, they could go down and gamble, all this stuff. And I think once they got there, this is only the second date on the tour. They realized this ain't happening. We're not getting out of our room. You know, they had planned that day off after New Orleans to explore the city. They knew that wasn't going to happen. And so when Charlie Finley came along and offered them $150,000 to play in Kansas City the next night, they went ahead and chose that. Yeah, sure. We'll take that. Yeah. Wise move. Wise move. I do think that's one of the things I love about seeing the pictures of Paul and Linda when they were down here working on Venus and Mars and they were here during carnival and like put on the face paint and like masks and like went out and got to kind of blend in, even though it's quite obviously Paul and Linda McCartney. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I think that makes those pictures and that kind of story and moment really sweet for them. At least for me as a new Orleanian, like I'm glad you got to enjoy Mm -hmm. that because it's such a singular thing to get to enjoy. And yeah, you know, it would have been great had John gotten to come down like he'd planned. And I don't know if George or Ringo have ever gotten to spend any time down here. I mean, if they did, it certainly wasn't, you know, a yeah, I believe, uh, didn't he play? I think he played Baton Rouge uh, on that 74 George tour. did play Baton Rouge. I think that was maybe the yeah. first show, I think. But and that's an hour, yeah. an hour 15 yeah. away. And I mean, yeah, they probably hopped on a jet and went to the next city because ain't nothing to do in Baton Rouge. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh. What I know you talked about, you know, you've continued learning things since the book has been out. Um, have you considered doing a an updated version or a revision version or like what kind of stuff have you no. found since then? <laughs> one no. and done. Yeah, <laughs> it's a one and done. I, I actually told my wife, I said, um, is she, she's I just love her to death. And she goes, I said, hey, if we make like one dollar in this book, is it OK if we do that? She goes. Yeah, I, I'm. I would love that you could do this. And have we made our dollar back? No, <laughs> but that's okay. I didn't. I didn't do the this for the money. And you're not doing the podcast for the money. I know that you're doing it because we all love the Beatles. Mm-hmm. That's why we do these things. And this was an area of their career that really had not been kind of exposed and written about and researched. And so I'm glad I have that one brick on the wall of knowledge to do it. But yeah, I find stuff new all the time. I found something new the other day. Like I saw this picture of Brian Epstein at Motown records when they were playing in Detroit in 1966. I had no idea that he had visited Motown, none. So I'm sure we'll hear about that in Mark Lewison's book. If and when he ever releases it. (laughs) One day. We may be dead, but who knows? (laughs) Man. Well, that's fantastic. You know, I, I, it's a, it's a, a marvelous book. I'm, I'm just now, getting into it like i was saying earlier i've got uh volume one next to my next to the bed volume two is on the couch so i've just been kind of jumping back and forth uh it's one of those it's one of those things where you can kind of just today i'll read about 
you know, these four dates. And then, you know, after work, I'll read about these guys. And like, I love books like that, you know, where I can just kind of hop around back and forth. And it's, it's so well done. And I, I can't thank you enough for, as a fan for, you know, contributing something like this to, uh, to that legacy, I think is really amazing. So I, I tip my hat to you, Chuck. Well done. <laughs> thank you. And, and one other thing I wanted to do in the book was pay homage to the support acts. Yes. I thought that was really cool. No one even like remembers who they, who they were. I mean, these people went on tour with the Beatles for several weeks at a time mm-hmm. and shared, I'm sure a lot of intimate moments on the plane or, waiting for the show to go on. And so I, well, that's one of the things I wanted to include in the book is, is a history, a short history and kind of photographs of all the support acts that uh, went along the way. Yeah. I, uh, I remember as a, as a kid that I had a reproduction of the city park uh, show poster and I thought it was just the neatest thing. And I, I didn't know how it even worked that Clarence Frogman Henry was listed as an opener because he's from new Orleans. And I, I remember thinking like, how in the world did this guy who sang these this weird song from New Orleans end up on this show with the Beatles? Um, so it's great now to realize, oh, well, he had the same manager as the promoter. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, it's it's business. Yeah, it makes total sense. But he, yeah, he's exactly. still kicking around yeah, town, was, actually. Uh, he's still, yeah, and he's still kicking around town, still performing. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's from Algiers. Yep. Yep. I don't know if he yeah. still lives in Algiers, but. I he should, was raised there. Yeah. yeah, should look him up. Get the Frogman on the uh, on the podcast. Mm. <laughs> I don't know if he does podcasts. I'll have to find out. Mm. <laughs> well, why don't we uh, turn our attention and talk about this week's song? Uh, if you're ready to dive into it, can't wait. Excellent, excellent. Well, friends, coming in this week at number one oh six is "Baby It's You." It's not the way you smile that touched my heart. It's not the way you kiss that tears me apart. Oh, many, many, many nights go by. I sit alone at home and I cry over you. What can I do? Baby, it's you. Written by Burt Bacharach, Mac David, and Luther Dixon, Baby It's You was initially a top 10 hit on the pop and R&B charts for the Shirelles in 1961. Now, as we've discussed on previous episodes, the Beatles were huge fans of R&B groups, covering numerous songs by those artists in the early part of their career. The Shirelles were one of the bigger groups in that world with a track record of some massive era-defining songs such as Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow and Dedicated to the One I Love. And when the Beatles went into EMI Studios on February 11th to record the remainder of the songs that would make up their first album, they recorded not one, but two Shirelle songs. Their rocky cover of Boys, which would be Ringo's vocal spotlight on the record, and the more mellow Baby It's You. Now, Baby It's You had been in the band's live set for a while, and their familiarity with the tune is evident in that it only takes the band three takes to record it. It had even been on a short list of songs that Brian encouraged them to record during their first EMI session earlier in 1962. Uh, It was recorded during the tail end of the band's 10-hour marathon session, featuring John on lead vocal and rhythm guitar, 
Paul on bass and backing vocals, George on guitar and backing vocal, and Ringo on drums. And then several days later, George Martin added an overdub of a Celeste to double the guitar solo. Baby It's You was released in March of 1963 on the Please Please Me album, then later in the U.S. in January of 64 on Introducing the Beatles. It was performed by the band numerous times, including three BBC sessions, the second of which was released on the Live at the BBC Volume 1 record in 1995. It was also featured as a single that year as well. So, why do I have Baby It's You at 106? I've always found it really interesting that the band never recorded more Burt Bacharach material, especially in the early days. He's such a brilliant melodicist, and the Beatles are always all, all, they're always all about melody. Uh, so it's really su- surprising to me that they didn't kind of lean more into his catalog. Um, and one song they do record by him doesn't have a lot of those Bacharach staples and kind of like the chord changes and movements that he does. Uh, but Baby It's You has a wonderful melody, so maybe that alone is as Bacharach as it gets, just to having a wonderful melody. Um, it's kind of a somber, melancholic melody, uh, played much straighter than the Shirelles do in their version, which is a bit more doo-wop. It's got a bit more swing to it. Um, it's the early Beatles are kind of their most R&B here, and John really excels as a vocalist on these kind of songs. Um, it's a huge advantage that they're doing this at like hour nine of a 10 hour session because John's voice is rough in just all the right places, especially in like the pre-chorus, like the don't want no body lines where he gets that really pain gravelly vocal going. Um, performance wise, everyone plays it really safe instrumentally, kind of just letting the song itself do the work because it's just good enough to do that. Um, I do have to say I'm absolutely pleased that they don't try to emulate the keyboard sound from the Shirelles version on the solo because that's possibly one of the most grating ear-piercing sounds, ear-piercing sounds ever laid to tape. Um, Paul and George add the requisite sha-la-la-la-las and backing vocals, sounding pleasantly scouse in the word cheat. Um, the whole thing is really sold on John's strength as a singer here, though, and he puts across some real pain in his delivery that really sells the track. Um, it's a song I feel like I can listen to multiple times in a row because it's short and sweet. It's just a really cool, moody song in the middle of a lot of really fun rock songs. I'm a big fan of this one, though. Uh, Chuck, I toss it to you. Baby, it's you. What do you think? So, Jonathan, when you say 106, I have to <laughs> like repeat back. 106, question mark? <laughs> like, okay. I was so excited when I got your email and you said, pick between these like six, seven songs and like Baby at You was on. I was like, oh my gosh, like I'll be so excited. Like probably no one wants that song, right? <laughs> I want that song, okay? And Baby at You probably cracks my top 25 songs. Wow, okay, okay. I know, okay. And you, now you're shaking your head. No, so no, I'm no. Kind no. Of, I've, drawn, I've drawn you in now. I'm shaking it like I love, like, I love this. Please 25. tell me, yeah. So... I don't know what it is, but you know, you have like songs in your head, like that just pop in your head all the time. Mm-hmm. Like right now, like a song in my head is uh, Talking Heads Life During Wartime. Like I'm always like this guy <laughs> popping in my head all the time, right? Uh-huh. It's because the movie, I don't know. But Baby It's You for several decades has been in my head. Like I'm getting ready for bed at night and I'm like singing the John. You know, the John, that pleading, you know, you know how it is. It's just that, oh, yeah. that voice of his, the voice of his draws me in. Mm-hmm. Okay. First of all, it's so ballsy of the Beatles to pick this song from this, you know, African-American group, you know, and out of Motown. I mean, that's ballsy, right? I yeah. mean, 
you're doing this, you know, you're doing this, this cover song done by a girl group of all things. And when did they first listen to it? I mean, 1961, when did they even get it over there? How did Baby It's You even arrive in Liverpool yeah. for them to hear it? Where did they hear it? They might have heard it at Brian Epstein's record shop mm -hmm. in the in the listening booth. And then they love it so much that they put it in their set. I mean, it's almost as ballsy as Pat Boone in 1964 <laughs> singing a cover of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Which I don't know if you've heard that, but I heard it the other day. I was like, wow, that's ballsy. Is it but, as, as um, ballsy as his cover of like No More Mr. Nice Guy by Alice Cooper? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> It's got all the right elements in it for me. Um, I love John Lennon's voice. I understand he recorded this right before that, you know, it was that marathon recording day, the whole album of one day. And it was right before they did Twist and Shout. And we know John's voice was pretty much gone by that point. Mm -hmm. So it's got that, like you said, that gravelly, soulful, you know, Ray Charles, little bit of Smokey Robinson. I mean... How he like takes it from the Shirelles, which they did a great effort, don't get me wrong, but how he takes it from the Shirelles and does this singing version of it is just incredible to me. Okay, then two days later, George Martin puts a Celeste on it. I mean, okay, where are you going to get a Celeste? Of course, you're going to get it at Abbey Road. They got everything, <laughs> yeah. right? Oh, let's put a Celeste on. Oh, we got one right in the back room. Let's drag it out. Um, you're right. The one, the bridge by the Shirelles, the organ, whatever that is, that is terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great. <laughs> like you can't wait for them to get back on vocal. Um, I love the simplicity of it. I love the, just that pleading, you know, all of my life I've been, you know, I just love it. Mm -hmm. And it will remain one of my top 25 Beatles songs of all time in in my life. So um, that's baby at you. I love that. You know, I, I think one of the, the great things about this band, and I feel like we say this a lot is everyone gets something different from almost every song with this band. And I love that. I can have a song at one Oh six and you can have it top 25 and neither one of us are wrong because it's still <laughs> great. Like it's a fantastic <laughs> performance. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, one of the things I, kind of was thinking about with this um with john's vocal especially is when he hits those you know can't help myself and his voice is really straining there i've always kind of and maybe this is just my brain making it up but i feel like that early john stuff where he's really screaming is like the sad little scared boy who's like singing for his life like he knows this is the only shot he's got is to make this work and he's singing like his life depends on it and in 30 minutes when he's doing twist and shout, that's literally screaming until your throat bleeds. Um, so he's another on the cusp good example, of that. Yeah, another good example of that, I think, is Please Mr. Postman yeah. with John's vocals. It's mm -hmm. kind of this earnestness, this pleading. But another thing about Baby It's You is that, to me, it's the absolute essence of the Beatles formula. It's them taking a song from America that was a hit in America bringing it to Liverpool, going to Abbey Road, and turning it into this song that's almost like an original. Mm -hmm. And then repackaging it and reselling it to America. I mean, isn't that's that's the Beatles story. Yeah, It's taking a lot of American music and influence 
repackaging it and reselling it, you know, to the world, especially America, which was their biggest market. So uh, I think Baby It's You is a perfect example of that. Yeah, that's spot on. Uh, Julia, what do you think on this one, my dear? What's the song in your head right now? Like, what's the, what's the thing that's like circling your head all the time? I'm like dying to know. Oh, what song is in my head right now? Yeah, oh, like what, what's the thing that you're like singing all the time? Um, I know what mine is, and it's really embarrassing. What is yours? Oh, I've been singing it like every morning for like two weeks. I don't remember. Chicago's Look Away. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah I've been singing that a lot. That's right? really Just weird. saw Chicago like three weeks ago. No. Amazing. <laughs> 56 straight years of performing. Wow. Amazing. I actually like... So my dad was a huge Chicago fan. I, I shouldn't say was. He's alive. He probably still is. Um, but I never did like a deep dive on Chicago. And I didn't even realize that this song was Chicago because I feel like it maybe came out in like the 80s, this song. And I was like too young to like think about, like comprehend like who that was. I just like knew it from the radio. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, oh man, this is Chicago. So I looked up their Wikipedia and didn't I find that they had like 19 platinum albums and I was like, what the what? (laughs) And like eight of them are like multi-disc albums. (laughs) I like that. And like multi-platinum too or something like that. I was like, that is a bonkers career. Mm -hmm. Well done, Chicago. (laughs) So I know this isn't the ranking Chicago podcast. Oh, go for it. A really interesting fun fact about Chicago I was when I was looking at their history. Like for several years during the late mid to late 80s that, you know, they're replacing lead singers all the time. Mm -hmm. The lead singer actually graduated from my high school the same year I was there. And I had no idea. To this day, I have no idea who that was. The guy was the lead singer of Chicago. I have no idea who he was. And we had our class reunion and he never replied or anything. He didn't say he was going. It's big time now. It's big time. The musician in L.A. right now or something. How funny. I thought that was so weird. Yeah. That's How so funny. funny. Oh my gosh. I don't know what song's been in my head uh, lately. I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, so I haven't had much. Boring. There's probably a Beatles song popping around there somewhere. Boring. <laughs> Sorry. Get on my level, man. <laughs> Get some more Chicago in your life. Actually, it's been it's been a little bit of Beach Boys lately, which I know you're kind of burned out on oh the Beach God, Boys I'm at the moment. I'm so burned out on the Beach Boys right now. <laughs> I love you, but dang, like give it a rest. <laughs> Unpopular opinion. I don't see what people see in pet sounds. Sorry. <gasps> oh, Chuck. Oh, oh no. God. Oh, no, Chuck. Don't do this oh, to no. me. Don't do this to Sorry. me, Chuck. <laughs> Sorry to turn it to a negative kind of rant here, but we, what in can a, I say? In a, a couple of episodes ago, I, I, what episode was it when we talked about pet sounds? I think it was the one with Dave uh, Depper. So the episode that came out three, three weeks ago, I divulged the fact that though I do host this Beatles podcast, the Beatles are my favorite band. My favorite song is a Beatles song. My favorite album is Pet Sounds. I give that to you. I understand. I get a lot of people get it. They love it. It's ranked high all the time. Any survey, sometimes the best of all time. I don't know. I've, I've really like tried to get into it, and I cannot get into it. Yeah. Great couple songs. Yeah. But other than that, it's just not I do landing. like the cover photo because it was shot at the San Diego Zoo. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. Cute. Fun. I, I live that. right by the zoo. So there you yeah. go. You can go see where a goat hopped on Mike Love next time you're at the zoo. <laughs> right. <laughs> we need to put a plaque. <laughs> <laughs> on this site in 1966, a goat. I really think they should do that, and I think the city should be lobbied to do that. That is a pretty I mean, that's a pretty that's one of the most famous albums of all time. So yeah, yeah. I would say, yeah, maybe it's worthy of a plaque. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? Oh, boy. 
Um, I think it's a very nice performance okay. of a lovely song that someone else wrote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, that's just sort of how I feel about it. Like, I, I just really have a hard time with the covers. Um, I just, I don't have strong feelings about them because I can't get over the fact that they're written by someone else. And they usually stay fairly true to the performance, I feel like. Like, mm-hmm. they don't change it up too much. Um, I, I just, there's definitely songs that we've passed that I would rather listen to. Um, like, two of us. Yeah. Cue it up. I want to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Um, she's leaving home on repeat for like an hour. I'm good. <laughs> I'm settling in. <laughs> oh, thumbs down from Chuck. Oh, she's leaving home. Chuck's giving me a thumbs I'm glad down. that wasn't one of the seven choices. Like, oh, she's no. leaving home. Yeah, that's probably like in my 150s. Yeah. <sighs> Oh my do you gosh. know? Do you know your bottom? Why are your podcast tier? so popular? What? We go endlessly. <laughs> I uh, yeah, it's just like interesting. It's, it's just not grabbing. Like it's it's love. It's a lovely song. It's great. It's, I'm just like that's fine. Yeah, it's fine. Interesting. I, I feel yeah. Now that I'm thinking back on previous episodes, I feel like you're usually. Somewhat indifferent on the covers. Yeah, I just I feel like I struggle with them. I I think I struggle to just like have them grip me because it's mm-hmm. it's not anything different. I mean, I'll agree. John Stillivery is good. Like the the little bit of gravelly in his voice, like it's very nice. It it lends itself to a bit of passion, sure, or whatnot, um, or whatnot, or whatnot. Uh, but it's fine. Yeah, I'm sorry. Don't That's yell okay. at me. Like, I'm we're sorry, all entitled. Never have to apologize. <laughs> Everyone's entitled. And you know, a cover song did inspire the title of my book as well. Mm-hmm. Long Tall Sally. Oh. Yep. Some fun tonight. Oh, all right. Which we are, we are far, far away from that song on this podcast, because I love that version of that song. One take. Yeah. And it's so good. It's got everything. <laughs> it's absolutely killer. Um, That's like the Encyclopedia of the Beatles in one song. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> it's like, hey, uh, yeah. rock and roll melody, uh, let's do it. Bang. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rock and roll. Oh, we got one more to do. Oh, let's do this. Right. <laughs> I got 10 minutes. We could toss that off yeah. real quick. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a fantastic version. Weren't they looking at... I was... They were, were they, I know they did a single of this when the BBC album came out in 95. Am I crazy in thinking they were going to do one in the eighties with it? Maybe from like the sessions. I can't remember um, if they were, but I have to tell you one little other side note of baby. It's you. Mm-hmm. And that is, it is by memory, the first Beatles album I bought so it was the early Beatles. It was mm-hmm. on the Capitol, you know, record, the early Beatles. I remember distinctly riding my bike down to Tower Records. And, you know, I'd gotten back from this high school trip, right? And I'm all, like, hooked on the Beatles again. And I actually had some money. I mean, I think I had, like, five bucks in my pocket at the time. So <laughs> I got my, my bike and Tower Records, probably about a five-minute bike ride. And I'm going through the Beatle bin. And there was something about the cover 
of the, it was so basic, you know, I don't know the early Beatles cover, if mm -hmm. you look it up on Google, but it's just so basic of the four faces, basically. But that album lineup on the Capitol album, I love it. Yeah. I love the, the Capitol American early Beatles rather than the album it was on, on the British lineup. Mm -hmm. um, so that's another reason why I like Baby It's You, because Baby is one of the first songs I was really exposed to where I played it over and over and over. Now, how old were you at that time, if you had to guess? So I would have been about six, 15, I think. Yeah. That's probably 15, right around 16. the time when like you got your first heartbreak and you just a song like baby it's you just really can connect to like a broken hearted kid, you know, who's... Well, I never had a heartbreak. I, mean, I never dated. <laughs> Whoa. I never had a girlfriend in high school. <laughs> Fair enough. I didn't I... have a breakup. Chuck is I like, lousy in a, I'm in a doing the heartbreaking over here. Don't put that on me. <laughs> oh man. Well, we're going to put some power on right now. That's okay. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've got an interesting uh, fork at the road here because I've yes. got I've got this at 106. Chuck's saying top 25. Where are you, where are you putting this one, Julia? If you got a ballpark at somewhere, uh, I think it's a little high. I would move it back a little bit. You think in the 150s or uh, high 100s? Um, I'd say in the 150s. 50s. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm just so weird about the covers. Yeah. But I totally get like having a like an emotional connection to a song or an album, like a song on an album. Like I completely get that. Like there's definitely songs that I know aren't people's favorites, but they have a, like a very sentimental memory attached to them for me. And so they're like way higher on what's my little mental list because mm -hmm. I'm never making a printed list. <laughs> I will not put forth the effort. One um, day. But yeah, I totally like understand and respect that. Like, I think it's great. I love that you're so connected to it. Yeah, it's um, yeah. So a lot of this probably reverts back to early childhood and really early kind of teenage and really getting hooked onto music. Yeah. So when that brain was just like, just soaking everything in. Mm -hmm. It was so new and fresh. I wore that early Beatles album out. I mean, I love, love that album. Do yeah. you do you do you find yourself going back to the Capitol albums when you listen to Absolutely. Yeah. I still like the echo on She's a Woman. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. That's I just cool. I just it just sounds kind of cool. And they yeah. hated it. I understand. They hated it. Um, I like it. Yeah. I do think there are a couple of those records that really shine in different ways. Like the uh, Something New album is just a fantastic uh, rock and roll album. Beatles Six. Yeah. Yeah, Beatles Six. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Beatles Six to me is kind of one of those deals where it's just at that period in their life, their career, they're just cooking on all cylinders. Yep. yep. I mean, every song is like, how are, and how are they writing this with a scheduler keeping up? Mm. I mean, they're everywhere. They're doing it. They're making movies. They're doing TV appearances. They're whatever, you know, this, that, concert touring. You know, Brian says, hey, I got to have George Martin says, hey, I've got to have a single out in, you know, two months or a month or whatever. Like, write it, you know. And, oh, and by the way, you got to do an album, too. You know, <laughs> how, yeah. how did they do it? I don't know. I think it was speed. <laughs> they were on Probably speed. A lot they were on speed. Yes. That's yeah, sure a lot of prellies. Yeah. Contribute a lot of that to drugs. <laughs> See, a like, lot of prellies. When the walrus was in California for our brutal three show in 
five day oh, schedule. Yeah. A lot of Starbucks. <laughs> a lot of Starbucks. Yeah. <laughs> um, Chuck, this is great, man. Um, I think we, I think we've got it good here. Uh, before we wrap it up for the evening, can we throw some rapid fire questions your way? Oh, totally. And as I always say, they don't. Your answers don't have to be rapid. They almost never are. Uh, the more the more of tangent you go on, the better. <laughs> um, all right. Number one, your favorite Beatles song. And it can be of all time or it could be today. Yeah. You see, I saw your face go, oh, God, Jesus. <laughs> uh, favorite Beatles song would have to be, um, uh, would have to be uh, Let It Be. Okay. Okay. I think you're the first person that we've had that's chosen Let It Be. Mm. Not saying that that's wrong or right. Um, now, not to say it won't be different tomorrow. It'll but probably right be different now tomorrow. during the rapid fire. Yeah, Let It Be. Yeah. You love it. Uh, your least favorite Beatles song? Probably uh, She's Leaving Home. <laughs> Since we already <laughs> mentioned it. Nice. I'm, Sorry. I'm dying. I'm dying. <laughs> over over Mr. Moonlight and Sleep Deacon. I like Mr. Moonlight. What an opening. Come on. Oh, the, the opening's the best part. It's all downhill yeah. after that. <laughs> oh, it is. It kind of goes to Perry Como. Oh, that. yeah. <laughs> uh, your favorite Beatles album? Uh, definitely would have to be uh, Revolver. Yeah. Um, but on the American label, I think Beatles 6. Okay. I love it. Um, as we're talking about cover songs here, uh, your favorite song the Beatles covered? Long Tall Sally, without a doubt. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Uh, and the last one, your favorite memory associated with the Beatles? Wow. My favorite memory, probably seeing... It's post Beatles, but seeing Paul McCartney live in concert in Liverpool. Oh, wow. And like the fifth, the fifth row and Elvis Costello was like behind me. That was kind of cool. <laughs> wow. wow. When was that? I got that through a friend and she invited me and it was, we, yeah, it was an awesome, it was an awesome, awesome experience. Was this, uh. Cause he really has to try hard in Liverpool. Oh yeah. <laughs> he can't phone it in. No, that's how the Liverpudlian mind thinks. Like, well, you haven't made it in Liverpool. Like prove it again. <laughs> right. And he put on a great show. When I mean, was, was that? What, what year was that? That was, uh, let's see. It was, uh, was it prior COVID? I think it was like December of. Remember, it was really cold in Liverpool. I think it was like December of 19 or something. So wait a minute. Okay. So the guy that he wrote Flowers in the Dirt with is sitting behind you and not hanging <laughs> yeah. out side stage? What in the My world? My friend poked me in the ribs and said, look, Elvis Costello, like three rows behind us. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? How does he was that on an end. He was on an end seat, though. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I mean, the end is prima, so I'll give him that. Elvis Costello, <laughs> just like us. Yes. <laughs> He is just a normal. And he person. probably got to go backstage, which I didn't get to go. Ah, uh, yeah. That's, yeah, that probably happened. Yeah. So. He's coming to New Orleans. We should go see Elvis. Oh yeah. Should have him on the podcast. I did see that. Oh, well, let's see if he'll... Elvis. <laughs> I know you're listening. Do you want to come on? <laughs> Elvis is a big Beatles fan, man. I know. He's a big, big fan. Uh, well, Chuck, man, this has been so much fun. I, I can't thank you enough for for reaching out and doing this with us. Um, where can all of our listeners pick up the book? Where can they follow along with you and anything that you've got going on? Obviously Amazon, but if you want a personally signed copy for me and free shipping, uh, just go to my website at www.somefuntonight.com and uh, you will get a nice 13-pound book in your mailbox. And when your gym membership is up, you can use my book for weights. <laughs> 
afterwards. <laughs> Home training. Yes. I'm also, While being read in the Beatles. I'm also super impressed that you managed to land that website. Like, that's impressive. Yeah. I feel like that was uh, a very... That this is very lucky. <laughs> Some people think it's a sex site, but it's not a sex site. <laughs> it is a book site, and you can read all about it. You can listen to previous interviews, uh, whatever you want. Chuck, it says this website is blocked at work. What are you sending me to? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just N- it is not NSFW, believe me. <laughs> uh, completely it's un- okay. Completely unrelated. I read some story the other day about uh, the Disney film The Santa Claus. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why this popped in my head when you said that. Uh, there was a line in the movie where Tim Allen apparently is arguing with his wife and uh, says something about – she says something about her phone number. And he's like, oh, I know your number. It's 1-800-SPANK-ME. But then when they <laughs> when they put the movie on VHS, they had overdubbed it to something different because it turned out that wasn't actually an active one eight not like an active oh, adult, oh adult line, and children were like racking up the phone bills. What? <laughs> Santa Claus. <laughs> I'm leaving this in the episode. <laughs> Chuck, thank you so much, man. This has been a pleasure. I, I, we've got you know a hundred and you know five more of these. So if you want to come back on, I'll have you have you back on another on another one. Awesome, would love to do it. And hey, if the walrus is anywhere near anywhere you're listening to this podcast go see the walrus or go see jonathan as a regular musician thanks he's awesome he nails it and uh hope i can't wait till you come back to the west coast next summer hopefully maybe before then we're trying so we'll see let's do it for sure okay all right thank you so much so much (laughs) (laughs) thanks chuck have a good night man thanks chuck okay you too bye 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 Chuck Gunderson, everybody. I don't know what happened to my tongue there at the end when I was saying goodbye. I got all tongue-tied. I thought you were just going to cut that out. Uh, I'm going to leave it. Okay. <laughs> Your, like, mouth stopped working. That was weird. It did. I don't know what happened there. Sorry. <laughs> it's fine. Because we're having some fun tonight. Oh. Got it. Yep. <laughs> Nailed it. Super fun. Uh, yeah, really, really nice guy. It was really nice to meet him out there. And, uh, yeah, I'm glad our, our paths just happened to connect. So, uh, friends, do yourselves a favor. Check out his book, Books plural because it's a two volume set some fun tonight it's really really flipping good highly recommended um so yeah let us know what do y'all think about baby it's you at 106 are we too high are we too low or just like baby bears porridge are we there you go can i get like some stank on it just like baby bears porridge are we just right that's not stank that's (laughs) that's disapproving (laughs) That's judging. That's what you get when you slap my leg when oh, you say sorry. it. sorry. Uh-huh. Just like baby bear's <laughs> porridge, are we? You've startled the dog. Yeah, you deserved it. <laughs> Let us know what y'all think wherever you're listening to our podcast, wherever you're following along on social medias. If you're looking for us, you can find us on Facebook at... Ranking the Beatles. You can find us on Twitter at... Ranking Beatles. I'm never going to call it X. And if you're looking for us on Instagram, you can find us there at... Ranking the Beatles. That's right. Make sure you check out rankingthebeatles.com for all your RTB needs. Tell a friend. We would love some fresh reviews. If you have not yet reviewed our show, leave us a review. Let us know what you're thinking. We'd love to know, assuming that you're enjoying it. If, it, if you don't like it, don't leave a review. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. That would be bad. That'd be mean. But, uh, yeah. So that's it, gang. It's been a whole lot of fun. Hope you've enjoyed it. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Until then, take care of yourselves. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Julia. This has been Ranking the Beatles. Adios. Bye, y'all.